Well, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark this morning. What a joy it is to return to the Gospel of Mark, really any place in the Word of God, but Mark has captured my heart for many months, as as you know, as I know it has yours as well, because it is all about the one true and living God that we love, who has laid His life down willingly and and raised it up again, God the Father raising it up again, that He might be the first fruits, that He might be the author and perfecter of our faith, that He might be the one offered to all for salvation. And we are in the final stretch of the book, and it's all about the cross from this point forward till we get to the very last chapter, and then we get to see the resurrection. There's the preparation for the cross in chapter 14, And we just have two more scenes of that preparation section. And then next Sunday, we will plunge into the, the, uh, the crucifixion of the Lamb. That'll be in full view. And the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is, is so contrary to the disciples' thinking. And quite frankly, to our thinking, the way that it happened, the way that God orchestrated it, it's so contrary that Mark is helping us understand how we, how we even get there. I mean, when you think about it, how do you get from the raising of Lazarus from the dead with throngs following the Lord into, into Jerusalem crying, Hosanna, here comes the king, the, 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 the anointed one, the king of David. How do you get from there on Sunday to being scourged and killed on Friday, just a few days. How do you get there? Well, that's that's the on-ramp. This is where we're at. Mark is revealing all of the human characters that play a part in the final moments preparing for that for that faithful end, that, that faithful and faithful end. Now, we understand the main character in the Bible is God. It's all about God. It's His story. It's His revelation. But there are five other individuals or groups that play a part in setting up the triumph of the cross and we have been looking at them, and, and, and you will no longer see this, this slide that's become very familiar to this background after today. It's, it's over after that, and we're not moving along here, fellas, so you're going to have to, we might have to look at this slide just a little bit longer, right? So, there is what we have been, what we have been working through. There's the plotting rulers of verse 1 and 2, the, the adoring woman of verse 3 through 9, the betraying brother, and in quotes, that's, that's Judas, and then the dense disciples, we saw that in the Passover, and now we have come to, to predictable Peter, Peter who makes a prediction, one that he has made before, and then of course the sovereign designer is God, he is, he is all throughout and the Lord has just done several hours of extensive teaching with the, and He's doing that with the disciples one final time. I mean, if you look at the, the number of verses in the Gospels that, that make up the ministry of, of Jesus, it would be hard to, to underestimate the, the significant amount of time given to, to, the, to what Jesus says in the upper room. It's extensive. One more time, he gives them the promises of the, of the Spirit's ministry, the assurance of, 
of his return. John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Um, and he ends with this high priestly prayer, right? John 17, he prays that they would be protected. They'd be protected from the world. And with the Passover meal complete, Jesus now gives another warning to his disciples of what's going to happen, not only to him, but, but to them. He predicts in the verses that, that Michael has read for us that we're going to look at that all of the disciples will fall away. And he's already said during the meal, one of them will betray him. And now he predicts all will deny him. Peter in particular. And he will reject him so categorically he, he declares he doesn't even know who he is. And John MacArthur said, if you have never been tempted with fear to deny the Lord, you probably are not grasping the gospel. You've probably not shared the depth of the gospel because it is, it is so offensive that we, we want to take the edge off of it. We've all been tempted to, to fear. We've all been tempted to, to just, just cut a little corner, to, to take a verse that is so in our face, that so destroys our, our human pride, our self-sufficiency, to just, to just take a little bit of ledge off of that. And all of those are, are little denials. But Jesus says to the disciples, there's going to be a massive defection. There's going to be a massive denial. At the moment, at the most critical and crucial moment of, of, the, of, the, Lord's, of the Lord's ministry. I would say in some ways what Jesus says to his disciples here is, is, is probably perplexing to them. Now think about it. They're already struggling with God's purpose for the cross. They're all about the kingdom. They're not about the cross. They, 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 they don't understand this, this crucified Messiah business. They're looking for the kingdom. They're looking for a triumphant Messiah. And he says he's the Son of Man who will be rejected and he'll be delivered. Even, even further, why they might be perplexed with what Jesus says here, well, all of you will deny me, is they just heard Jesus pray within the past hour that they would be preserved, right? I mean, John 17. John 17, Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them, keep the disciples in your name. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And listen, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction or perdition. That's Judas. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, this is the son of God praying. Father, keep them in your name. Father, I have kept them. And not one of them has fallen away except the one who was predicted to fulfill Scripture. Father, bring them to where I am that we might be there together forever and they'll behold my glory. They just heard Jesus pray this a few moments before he makes this statement. And now he says, all of you will fall away. Right after they get done singing Psalm 136, his mercy endures forever, His mercy endures forever. Fall away? I, I mean, I thought you just asked God to preserve us, right? But the reason it's confusing 
is because the way that God does His work and the way we think He does is, is often very, very different, isn't it? God brings ultimate triumph through what the world views as utter failure. A crucified God brought to death by, by religious leaders that He's in confrontation with and Gentiles. And that's your Messiah? He makes up the church with not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. He chooses to make up the church that way. The weak things of the world in order to shame the things that are strong. In just a, a few days after the resurrection, he's going to save thousands at Pentecost. And he'll not inaugurate the kingdom. With the thousands that come to Christ at Pentecost in Jerusalem, Jews primarily, then persecution is going to come on the church and scatter those people all over the place. And he's going to allow that to, to take place. A colossal failure as far as the world is concerned. He says, give up your will and your life and your rights and you'll save yourself. Try to keep it and you'll lose it forever. You want to be great in the kingdom? Be a servant. Don't be a lord. You want to be the greatest in the kingdom? Be a bond slave. You are your chattel. You, 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 don't even, you don't even have personal significance. You know, you're a, you're an under rower in the belly of a ship. Rather, you're the, you're the, you're the barnacles on the bottom of, of the boat. Nobody knows your name. Nobody needs to know your name. You don't even need to know your name. You just need to know that you're Christ. And you'll be the greatest in the kingdom. Now, does that make worldly sense? Try that. Try, try to practice that on, uh, on Snapchat or Instagram or some other social media platform. That works, doesn't it? No, it doesn't work. And Jesus will bring the disciples into the kingdom, but He's giving them a lesson right now on how it works. He's preparing the disciples for standard kingdom operating procedure. And if you don't understand how the kingdom works, and you don't understand how up is down and giving up your life will, will cause you to gain it, then you're going to be very disillusioned. You're going to try to serve the Lord in, in contrary ways. The details of this passage are very rich. You see a faithful Savior who never stumbles, who never forsakes His mission and goes all the way to the cross, and you see the disciples' weakness in combating their overconfidence. And then you see God's prophetic plan in the background who brings those two things together and brings ultimate triumph and gathers more sheep and more disciples even through their failure and Christ's seeming failure on the cross. The passage has deep implications. It, you have Satan, you have sin, you have evil committed by the disciples, particularly Peter. You have Christ foretelling it all, showing how he intercedes and how he'll use it. And you have the Father declaring how he'll do the same thing for all the disciples, including the nation of Israel at the end, by quoting Zechariah. Church confidence in anything other than God's way will bring a fall. But Christ can bring success from failure, and He does it in very unlikely ways. Now, there are two predictions. We're Mark 14, verse 26. There are two predictions in this, in this passage. 
There's one from the Lord and one from Peter. The first one is in verse 27. You will all fall away. There's the first prediction. And then there's one from Peter in verse 29. I will not. Now think about that. You will all fall away, says Jesus Christ. Peter says, I will not. Think about that. Peter predicts it'll never happen, and he does three times. And so the outline's pretty simple. Two predictions about our devotion to Jesus. There is Jesus' certain prophecy, verses 26 through 28. And then there's Peter's challenging protest in verse 29 through, through 31. Let's look at the first one. Jesus' certain prophecy in verse 26. Look at verse 26. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now Mark says they sing a hymn. As we said it's Psalm 136. They repeat 26 times. His covenant love, His mercy endures forever. And they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. They would have had the Last Supper inside the walls of Jerusalem, inside the walls of the city. And so they would have probably cut across the Temple Mount and they would have went out the Eastern Gate, down the Kidron Valley, across the brook, which as we said would have been mingled with blood. And they would have climbed the Mount of Olives on the other side. And over there is an olive grove where they actually pressed the olives because there's olive trees there. It's interesting that the way that Jesus and the disciples leave Jerusalem this night is the same route David did when he fled from Absalom. The lesser David was rejected and he fled, and now the greater David being rejected doesn't flee. He'll go back into the city and lay down his life for his people. As soon as the hymn is over, Jesus makes this startling prediction. He says, you will all fall away. Have you ever heard uh, somebody make the statement that God doesn't tell you everything that you're going to do? Like, uh, when you get saved, you didn't know, you don't know everything of what it's going to cost you, like in detail, beforehand, because if you did know, you, you, you might not ever go into ministry, you might not ever uh, agree to do whatever God called you, God called you to do. Well, here Jesus tells them ahead of time what's going to happen. You're all going to fall away. This is the second prediction of infidelity in just a few verses. As I said at the Passover, one of you will betray me. And they, they never solved that prediction. You remember that? Is it me? Is it me? And they don't even know. Whenever, whenever Jesus even says what he says about G, uh, Judas, do what you are going to do quickly, the disciples think he's going out to obey the Lord in some way. They, they don't get it. And now Jesus says all of them will fall away. And the Greek verb is scandalizo. They'll be scandalized. You will all be scandalized because of me. You will all be offended because of me. You will all defect because of me. And the verse he quotes illustrates what he means. The, the sheep will scatter. They'll, they'll flee. They'll flee the shepherd. They'll say, he's not my shepherd. I know not his voice. His voice will call to them and they will reject his voice out of fear. It's exactly the opposite of what Jesus did when, when he went to the cross. He was faithful unto death. 
and no doubt rattled them greatly, and he tells them this so they would redirect their trust. And you can see in the second prediction that we'll get to where their trust was. Not only Peter says, I will not, but all the disciples go, yeah, 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 what he said. Jesus, in this first prediction, displays divine knowledge, divine scripture, and divine promise. Divine scripture by pointing to this prophecy in Zechariah. Divine promise when he declares the resurrection. I'll go before you into Galilee. And they get wrapped up in whether they would fall and they miss the fact that God was telling them what would happen ahead of time. Have you ever done that? You get so focused on what's happening, so focused on how this could happen, so focused on how you're going to get out of the trouble that you're in that you forget the God who is in control of it all, who's even ordaining the suffering or the difficulty, as Pastor Brody talked to us about, in order to bring about your good and to bring you to to His Son. Or you get so wrapped up in the issues that that you, you, you don't listen to the words of God that would help you through it all. Only God can tell you things ahead of time, and He does. And He does it so that when you fall, you'll remember who can restore you. Notice I said, when you fall. It's not a matter of if you're going to fall. You are going to stumble. You are going to sin as a believer. You're not perfected. You'll not be perfected. In fact, that's one of the greatest things about heaven, other than Jesus not fluffy clouds and harps and angels. I want to see my Savior, and I want to be without sin. Don't you? And those are the two things that I want. I want to see Jesus, and I want to... I understand you don't wake up in the morning, but I want to wake up in heaven, in the morning in heaven, the never-ending morning, and never be tempted to sin again. That will be a wonderful thing. And God tells you ahead of time, you will fall. And you may be here this morning at the precipice of a fall. And this message may be to warn you to listen to the words of God and not continue on the path that you're on. And He tells you that ahead of time so you will know where to turn. He tells the disciples so they'll know where to turn whenever they do fall to remember who can restore you. This is a warning of temporary failure. We know the disciples don't fall completely, utterly. This is a warning of temporary failure, along with a promise of enduring success. It's different from Judas. He wasn't recovered. There's a temporary failure here, along with a promise. And as they battled each other for positions in the kingdom, who would sit on the right hand and who would sit on the left, while they're in the upper room the third time that they do that, the real battle is their worldly thinking. The real battle is is they don't understand how the kingdom works and it's setting them up for a great fall. And so right before the garden, he's still concerned about you. He's still concerned about the disciples. But I want you to notice where this divine knowledge comes from. There's divine knowledge, but but look at where it comes from. You will all fall. Here's divine Scripture. Because it is written. Verse 27. Jesus says He knew that it would happen because it had been written it would. This is astounding. This is an exercise of omniscience. 
you will all fall. Omniscience, before it happens. Twinned with an exposition and application of prophecy. Reach back into the Old Testament. It has been written that you would do this, and he specifically applies it to these individuals. It's a significant passage to show how the Lord works. Jesus doesn't deny Scripture. He fulfills it, even when he's exercising deity, even when he's exercising omniscience. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish it, but to what? Fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle shall pass away from the law. Until all is accomplished, all is fulfilled. He says, I will will fulfill prophecy in general. All of the law. It's, It's general, right? There's not one little thing about the law as a whole that will go unfulfilled. And here is specific prophecy from the Old Testament applied. He knew what was written. He also knew who it was written about and when it would come to pass. Now, I know people try to do that all the time, like in the end times. It's coming, you know, sell your, sell your, you know, your Winnebago or whatever and buy a white robe and go out into the field and all that stuff. But Jesus does it perfectly. Because he not only wrote the prophecy, he's also the one bringing it to pass. And he causes it to accomplish God's purposes and our good. He knew everything. He knew the events of the future. He knew the meaning of the past. And he knows his own future. And he knows yours. What does he quote here? He says, it's written, there's the divine scripture, what is the scripture? I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be, will be scattered. That should likely be in a, in italics or some different font in your Bible. It's Zechariah 13, 7. And Jesus makes two predictions. The passage makes two predictions. The shepherd would be struck down. I will strike down the shepherd. That's what he says in Mark. And the sheep will be scattered. Two sides of the same coin. The same prediction. But don't miss the most significant thing about this verse. Notice in Zechariah who strikes the shepherd. Jesus says, it is written, I will strike the shepherd. That's God speaking. God says, I will strike the shepherd. And notice in Zechariah, he says, it's my shepherd. God calls in Zechariah, awake, O sword. He calls his own sword to be awakened against my shepherd. Don't you love Psalm 23? I'm probably going to quote it on Tuesday. 23rd Psalm at Brother Harold's homegoing service. That is great, son, no doubt. You've probably heard it at, at a funeral. You've probably read it many times. It's precious, not just for funeral times, but any time. We love Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He, he restores my soul. The Lord is my shepherd. Do you know why that you and I can quote that psalm? Because before the Lord was ever your shepherd, He was God's shepherd. And God raises His own sword towards His own shepherd 
And through his death, he gathers sheep. That's what Zechariah is saying. It's a messianic prophecy. I would say that's probably be debatable, second to the to Isaiah fifty three as far as clarity. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Ooh, whose hand? God's hand. Who are the little ones? The sheep. Zechariah has been talking about false prophets and Israel falling away and following them. And then he says he will turn them by turning his own sword on the true shepherd who is God's shepherd. And notice he says it's my associate, my personal representative. It it literally means he's my equal. It's a statement of, of Christ's deity. He bears the same essence as God himself. And he says when I do strike the shepherd, the sheep will will defect. And so we're back to Mark. Divine knowledge and divine Scripture. He says, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will will scatter. Jesus knew that he would be struck down and that would cause them to be filled with fear and terror and scatter. And they did. I mean, think about this. The disciples, in just a few moments, the disciples will separate and they'll scatter and they'll go in different directions until after the crucifixion, after being a tight group for three years. That's what's going to happen. That's why after the crucifixion you find two on the road to Emmaus. That's why you find Thomas not in the upper room. That's why you find Peter and his brothers back in Galilee. And you don't find the twelve together again until after the resurrection and they're brought back together for the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then they're together from that point forward in order to carry out the mission of Christ. But I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't end with the striking or the scattering. He points to the divine promise. Look at verse 28. The but here is emphatic. It's like in Ephesians. And you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy. That's that's the emphasis here. I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. The striking and the scattering is not the end of the story. God telling you that you are going to fall as a believer and your falling is not the end of the story. Hallelujah, right? (laughs) My little children, I'd have you that you sin not, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is your propitiation. Not your penance, not how many times you say you'll never do it again, not the strength of your will. Christ alone is your ground. And whatever tragedy or failure you're going through, it's not the end of the story either. There's a pattern here. I will strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. I will rise, the sheep will gather. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And they gather in Galilee. The resurrection of Jesus Christ will vindicate the shepherd. God doesn't raise heretics from the dead, does He? The resurrection will vindicate the shepherd, and it will also restore the sheep. The resurrection calls the sheep back together after they've been scandalized by the cross. And what seems like a tragedy in the disciples' denial 
turns into an even greater triumph. The resurrection is more than just getting a new body. I understand you want a new body. I want a new body too. But Jesus says here it's how God gathers His body. What's the significance of going to Galilee? I mean, you get the resurrection part, right? But after I've been raised, resurrection, very clear, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Is that just throwaway, just throwaway words? What's the significance? What's the significance of going to Galilee? What happens in Galilee? Well, it's exactly what we just heard last weekend, wasn't it? We don't know where they gathered in Galilee, but Matthew says it's a high mountain. Probably the most recognizable one is Mount Arbel. And what happens whenever they gather in Galilee? When I raise, go to Galilee, and I will gather you back together. And he does, and when he gathers them, that gathering is Matthew 28, 16 through 19. And that's the Great Commission. You think that's a mistake? It's not a mistake. They were gathered after they, after they scattered by the cross, gathered back together after the resurrection, and they are given the Great Commission. Scattered by their own weakness over His death, gathered because of His resurrection, and then He sends them out to gather more. That's what He does when He regathers them. The same disciples who were dull of hearing who argued over who was the greatest in the kingdom, who only saw Jesus as the earthly Messiah and failed to grasp His death, the ones who were not strong enough to remain, the ones who fell away, are the ones who proclaimed the gospel on Pentecost and rejoiced that they're privileged to suffer for His name, who tell the, the same rulers that they ran from and they scurried from, you, you decide. Should we obey men or obey God? We'll not stop preaching the gospel of Christ. These same disciples are the ones who ran and now. How does that happen? Well, obviously, empowerment of the Spirit, but that comes because of the resurrection of Christ. Because they stumbled at His death, they're, they're now gathered by His resurrection and He gives them another command to, to go and gather other sheep. And how does God describe us as the other sheep? All you like sheep who have gone astray. You've defected from your Creator. He says to you, I am Lord, and you say, no, I'm Lord. I'll take your benefits, but I won't take submission to you. And so we walk in a different direction, and we don't listen to His voice. And so He sends these same disciples that went through that process and saved them and gathered them together, go out and call to other sheep and gather them together. You and I, we would have never done it that way, would we? Yet, you know what I would have done? Same thing you would have done. I would have, I would have brought an army into Jerusalem. Or, no, no, better yet, I would have marched into Jerusalem with my, with my twelve disciples, and then I would have just stood back on the Mount of Olives, and I would have, I would have whistled for the angels to come down, and I would have fried every Roman in the place. And I, and I would have, I would have turned the religious leaders upside down. I would have, I would have brought an earthly kingdom. I would have only let in that kingdom the best and the brightest disciple, because who, who else should be in the kingdom other than the best and, and the brightest? Surely no cowards would have gotten into the kingdom. No deniers 
No weak disciples who denied the king would be, would be, would be let in. But you know, if that's the way God did it, there's not a single person here this morning that would be in the kingdom or have any hope of ever being used by God. That's not the way God works. He doesn't use goblets of gold. He uses clay pots, doesn't he? We have this treasury in earthen vessels. Why? The verse tells us, so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us, because none of us can boast in the Lord's presence the way that He's done it. And proof that we wouldn't have done it that way is in the prediction that we must avoid, and that's the next. Look how Peter responds. We'll go through this quickly. Verse 29, here's Peter's challenging protest. Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, I will not. Luke records his response to Jesus telling him, Now, this is important. There is a discussion about this same denial that happens in the upper room. It's in Luke. That's when Jesus tells Peter, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. You remember that passage? And Peter even there says, no. And now they're out of the upper room, and Jesus makes this declaration again, and Peter says, I will not. Luke records his response when Jesus tells him, Satan has requested, I am ready, Lord. Think about that. Can you imagine that? Surely you can. Because how many times in preaching or reading or through a good friend or some confrontation, someone has told you, warned you, and you thought you were ready. Peter even goes on to qualify how ready he thinks he is in verse 31. Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. I am ready. I am so ready to lose. I'm, I'm even ready to lose my freedom. I'm ready to give up my, my life for you. And Jesus says, you won't even give up your pride. You won't even listen to the authority of my words. And the arrogance of this statement is breathing. Don't think this is ignorance. Don't think, oh, silly Peter putting his foot in his mouth again as if he's clumsy. I mean, this is a response to prophecy. This is a response to divine knowledge, divine prophecy about an Old Testament passage that Peter surely knew in Zechariah and the promise of the resurrection. And Peter says, no, Lord, you're wrong. And every time I reject the Word of God, I am doing the exact same thing. I'm stiff-arming the Lord. It's not just ignorance, it's arrogance. Peter's response should have been, Lord, Lord, how, how can I avoid doing that? Well, his response should have been. And yet, insistently, stubbornly rejecting the Lord's knowledge of his own weakness. And what's even more amazing is Peter's done this before, even before in the upper room. You recall in Caesarea Philippi, there's another time when the Lord makes a statement to Peter. I'm going to Jerusalem and die. And Peter rebukes the Lord. He says, get behind me, Satan. He's rebuking the Lord again. Lord, I'm, I'm ready. I will not. And Jesus says, truly I say to you that this very night, before the rooster crows twice, 3 a.m., Mark's the only one that records the rooster crowing twice. The others record Jesus, uh, Peter rejects three times. It's finality. 
Not just once, but twice, but the third time. Truly I say to you that this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself, emphatic again, you'll deny me three times. No, Peter, you'll fall away. Not a little, but greatly. Not once, but three times. How do you respond to your children or to your employees when you graciously tell them something that's for their good and they look at you and say, no, you're dead wrong? How would you respond? Well, I'll tell you how my flesh would want to respond and how I probably have responded. Let me, let me help you fall. That's what I'm probably saying. That's not what the Lord does. He goes further in telling Peter exactly what he's going to do. No, Peter, you'll fall today, not a little bit great, not once, but three times. In Luke's account, the Lord uses his name Peter. He warns him, Simon, Simon, Satan has requested, lusted, and asked for permission to sift you like wheat. Simon, Simon, human Simon. Without me, you are nothing but a human being. And now, whenever Peter says, No, Lord, I'm ready, Jesus uses the word, uses his name Peter, the name he gave him, undoubtedly to remind him of the last time that Satan got the best of him at Caesarea when Jesus gave him his name. Simon, Simon, you are a man, so beware. I've got it, Lord. Peter, my apostle, the one I've chosen, you will fail me. And it makes it all the more serious and painful. Emphatic response. Even though all may fall, I will not. You, yourself, will deny me. The serious sin that Peter committed was outright public denial of Jesus Christ. He denied the very basis of his great confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. At one moment, he said that. Jesus calls him Peter. In a few hours, Peter will deny even knew the Lord. You were with them. You're one of them. You're one of His. No, I'm not. Emphatically denying he even knows Him. In verse 31 says, the rest of the disciples said, they all are saying the, the same thing also. Because... He says, all will fall. And so all of them say, no, will not. You're supposed to see a contrast here. They're boasting and then sleeping in just a few moments at the hour of Christ's agony. And the contrast is between their cowardice and Christ's courage. They say, I will not fall away. They all do. He goes to the cross willingly without even opening his mouth. They run and fear for their lives. When Jesus was facing His greatest test, they all go away. What's the point? That your Savior is the only source of victorious strength. And He walked the path for you. And the victory, temporary and complete, is in Him. 
And even when you do forsake and when you fall away, he will not deny his own. As Second Timothy says, Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. If we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. He'll get you through. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 He who calls you is faithful who will also do it. And even if you sin, He's faithful and just. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And these same disciples are gathered together and our Christ means by which He proclaims His gospel to the world and this same Peter who denies him three times and stiff arms even the Lord's prophecy here, is the one that God uses on the day of Pentecost to proclaim his glorious gospel. Now, you think you don't have hope in Jesus Christ? <laughs> That's the only place that you have hope. It doesn't matter what type of miserable wretch that you have been. But the only way that you'll find him or be used by him is to come his way. And that's humble, repentant, not the way of the world, losing your life that you might gain Him and all the glories of heaven. Won't you bow your heads?